Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Brittany K. Barnett, author of the book, A Knock at Midnight. Brittany, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Lee, for having me. Can you tell my listeners a little bit about who you are and why you chose to write this book? Yes. So I am an entrepreneur, an attorney, now an author, and I chose to write the book for a couple of reasons. One, to educate and tell the truth about racial injustice that bleeds through this nation's criminal legal system, in particular as it relates to the war on drugs. I wrote the book to tell the truth about human beings who were locked in cages as a result of the war on drugs and to truly humanize them in a way that shows the heartbeats. And, you know, I I always talk about, too, I wrote the book for another reason, and I am a Black woman from the rural South, and I also wrote the book for young girls of color from the South and hoping, you know, that they can read the book and see themselves in me and, and pursue their dreams of becoming a lawyer or whatever big dream they may have. I love that you bring that up because there were a couple times in the book where you talked about not truly believing you could be something until you saw someone already doing it or, you know, the very person who seems to have inspired your childhood dream of becoming a lawyer, Claire Huxtable. Can you talk about some of the people or moments that were really important for you as you were growing up deciding what you could be and and what to reach for? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you mentioned that because it's true. You know, growing up, I wanted to be Claire Huxtable from The Cosby Show. I wanted to be a lawyer like Claire Huxtable and probably from the kindergarten. You know, that's what I was telling people that I was going to be. Unfortunately, there were no lawyers in the small piece of rural Texas where I grew up, and there definitely weren't any Black women lawyers. And that dream of becoming a lawyer just started to seem out of my league, if you will. And I look back now and realize it's because I didn't know any. You know, representation is so important. And I went on to college and graduate school and became an accountant, but I never just fully let go of that dream to become a lawyer. And one day I was speaking with one of my mentors who was studying for the CPA exam, and I was borrowing his books so that I could study for the CPA exam. And I kind of mentioned to him in passing, you know, I was thinking about going to law school just to see what he would say. And he was like, oh, Brittany, you should definitely go to law school. You know, I've applied to SMU in Dallas, and I'm going to start law school in the fall. And I remember being so happy for him, Lee, but also just thinking, now, wait a minute, if he can go to law school, I know I can go to law school. And so having someone that close, you know, was so helpful. And then from there, I set on this path, okay, I'm going to go to law school, but I'm still not knowing any lawyers. And at the time, I was an accountant at PricewaterhouseCoopers in Dallas, and BakerBots was in the same building. And I went to the law firm's page and scrolled down to see all BakerBot's lawyers. And the first Black woman lawyer I saw was Krista Brown Stanford. And I sent her a random email. I told her that I worked in the same building as her and I was 
interested in becoming a lawyer. And I asked that she would meet me at the Starbucks downstairs for just advice on getting into law school. And she did. And Krista took my hand in the Starbucks that day in 2007, and she has never let it go. That's wonderful. So for my listeners, A Knock at Midnight is both a memoir where you talk about your your childhood and your very tight-knit family, but also explores the issue of the war on drugs, um, over-sentencing, clemency processes, and I think that I can say as someone who has read the book that you did achieve your goal of humanizing the people caught up in that process. And one of the people caught up in that process you know, was your mother, Evelyn Fulbright. Could you talk a little bit about your mother and how she became such a strong central figure in the book? Yeah, so growing up, you know, in the doors unlocked, windows wide open, piece of East Texas that I did, I had a a good childhood, you know, and very close-knit family, as you mentioned, but things were happening in my home that many, most, knew nothing about. And that was my mom was suffering from a drug addiction. And that drug addiction ultimately led to my mom going to prison when I was a young adult. But during this time, you know, it really brought me proximate to this war on drugs or what I call this utter failure of war on drugs. My mom began suffering from a drug addiction, gosh, probably as far back as I can remember, 94, when I was about in the fourth grade. And she ended up catching a case, received probation multiple times, but she couldn't uphold the conditions of her probation, not because she was committing any new crimes, because she wasn't. My mom had one conviction her entire life, but because she was failing her drug test. My mom, as I mentioned, had a severe addiction. She was a nurse and able to function for a while until she wasn't. And instead of getting rehabilitation that my mom so desperately needed, she was punished. And she was sentenced to eight years in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. And some of the most vivid passages to me were about the visits that you and your sister Jasmine made to her and the dehumanizing aspects to those visits, the very unsettling similarities to you have prison workers in the fields. It is very difficult not to make the connection to plantations and slave labor. Could you talk a little bit about what the families of prisoners go through when they try to visit their loved ones who are incarcerated? You know, I say all the time when one person goes to prison, the entire family goes to prison. And I experienced that firsthand with the incarceration of my mama. There is such a dehumanizing element surrounding the system of mass incarceration from the moment your loved one gets sentenced, when she's stripped of her name and given a prisoner number, when she's sent hours away to a prison that takes longer to get there than the time you get to visit with her. My mom was in prison in Gatesville, Texas, ultimately sent to Lockhart, Texas, near Austin. 
And I mean, it was a five hour or more round trip for my sister and I to travel only for us to get a two hour visit with our mom. And I'll never forget that first visit with her, Lee. There is a primal wound when your mama is in prison. And even though we went through the challenges from her addiction that led to her going to prison, we knew the love for us was unconditional. And we loved our mom unconditionally. And the first visit with her, I couldn't wait, you know, to see my mom, to touch her, to hug her. I hadn't hugged her in months. And I get up early. I'm driving the two and a half hours to the prison, and I'm so ready to see her. And I get there only to find out that we can't have a contact visit because she hadn't been in prison for 60 days yet. So I had to visit my mom through the glass. And there's something so deceptive about that glass when you're visiting your loved one in prison. It's three inches thick, you know, but it still feels like you're on an entirely different planet than your loved one. And I remember picking up the phone on my end and she picked up the phone on her end and just pressing that phone so tight against my face because I didn't want to miss a sound of my mama's voice. And to be so close to her, but separated by this scratched piece of plexiglass was such a barrier, you know, to our maternal bond. And you've actually started a program, and I'd love for my listeners to hear more about this. It's Girls Embracing Mothers. Could you talk a little bit about this? I started Girls Embracing Mothers to empower girls whose moms were in prison, to empower them to break the cycle that often accompanies incarceration and to lead successful lives with vision and purpose. And that desire and inspiration to start Girls Embracing Mothers came from my own experience with my mom. And we began the program in 2013 and partnered with Texas Women's Prisons there where my mom was imprisoned. And for the past seven years, we take a group of girls from the Dallas-Fort Worth area to visit their moms in prison the first Saturday of every single month. And through the partnership, the prison gives us four hours to visit instead of the normal two. We're in a visitation by ourselves with the girls and their moms. So in the education building, as opposed to the general visitation room, they allow us to bring in food, to eat lunch with the moms. We have art therapy sessions and we always cover a curriculum that revolves around critical life issues. And that program is so near and dear to my heart. And you can learn more about that program at girlsembracingmothers.org. One of the special surprises for me when I clicked on over to it was seeing the pictures of the board members and your mother's on the board. She is. She is. It is so important for me that directly impacted people, formerly incarcerated people, are at the center of any movement, of any work surrounding them. And, you know, my dream for Girls Embracing Mothers is for it to be ran, you know, by women and girls impacted by maternal incarceration. And I'm so proud. One of our gym moms, as we call them, Angelica Zaragoza, she was in prison and in our program with her daughter a few years ago. 
and she'd been released and she was a dedicated volunteer for us. I was able to hire her shortly after as our program coordinator. And at the top of this year, Angelica was promoted to program director. And to see her, you know, just three years ago, she was in a prison uniform, a white standard issue Texas prison uniform. And today she's she's leading our organization and, and it makes my heart so full. A major part of A Knock at Midnight is talking about the work you've done to gain clemency for many of the people who are in prison, usually because of the war on drugs and enhanced sentencing laws. And one thing that really struck me was it seemed every time you were successful, every time someone was able to be freed, after, of course, the initial joy of reuniting with their families, their major concern was for the people who were still left behind. Can you talk about the way you got involved in these clemency initiatives and how the formerly incarcerated people who you've worked with have been able to contribute to that work and and help others as well through it? Yes, I was an accountant, as I mentioned, and wanted to be a corporate lawyer. It was just a natural gravitation for me. And I went to law school with that in mind. I received an offer from Winstead, a law firm, to practice in their corporate finance department. And during this time, I just got really interested in criminal justice issues. I took a critical race theory course in law school at SMU, where it analyzes the intersection between race and the law. And in this course, I was writing a paper about disparity in sentencing between powder cocaine and crack cocaine and this truly arbitrary 100 to 1 sentencing ratio that was put into place through the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act. And with this, I learned that a person with 500 grams of powder cocaine would get the same amount of time as someone with only five grams of crack cocaine. Now, it's not lost on anyone, Lee, you know, especially now that during the late 80s, powder cocaine was used by mostly affluent white people and crack cocaine was running rampant through communities of color, in particular black people. And because of this arbitrary 100 to 1 ratio, there was just this highly disproportionate number of black and brown people in federal prison for drugs. In fact, over 80% of the people in federal prison for drugs are black and brown. And I was writing the paper and wanting to explain this to my fellow colleagues, and I just knew I was missing something. I was missing that heartbeat. I was missing the humanization aspect. And during this time, came across the case of Sharonda Jones. And Sharonda was a Black daughter of the rural South like me, and she was serving at the time her 10th year of a life without parole sentence for a drug offense, her first ever conviction, felony or otherwise. And there's no parole in the federal system. And so Sharonda Jones was set to die in prison. And the more I dug into her case, I realized that She was a victim of this 100 to 1 ratio that I was learning about. And so I wanted to use her case in my paper to highlight this issue and this racially unjust law. 
and show, you know, how the tides were turning. The Sentencing Commission was saying that this ratio was unfounded. Laws were beginning to change to help alleviate the ratio. But I still wanted to use her case and in a way to develop empathy, you know, and just show that heartbeat. And so that's where I really came into this issue. And Sharonda and I formed a bond. I did go on to practice corporate law and I would work pro bono on these cases like Sharonda's at night. You know, thankfully, after six years of a lot of work, I was able to get clemency for Sharonda Jones from President Obama after she had served 16 years and nine months. I began to take on other cases and to really get more involved in this clemency process and understanding that clemency is where justice meets mercy, so to speak. And it is granted as a sole power of the president of the United States through the Constitution. During the time, President Obama had a clemency initiative where he had recognized the unjustness of the sentencing as it relates to drugs in this country and just how draconian the laws were. And I began to just get more and more involved in this clemency initiative, took on more cases, including the case of Corey Jacobs, who, just like Sharonda, was serving life for his first ever conviction for drugs. And, you know, I began to notice and just develop relationships with my clients and realizing that they are among some of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my life. And that's one of the things I try to get across with my work. You know, they're not bad people. They just made bad choices and got caught because people make bad choices every day. And we put such a stereotype and judge them in a way that is just counterproductive to anything justice. And thankfully, Corey Jacobs received clemency as well from President Barack Obama And during this time, I had decided to resign from corporate law to truly follow my passion to transform the criminal legal system. And once Sharonda and Corey were free, they felt like a survivor's remorse, if you will, because they had served decades in prison with people who had become like family to them, people who they knew were just as deserving of freedom as they were. And so we linked arms. I linked arms with Corey and Sharonda, and we co-founded the Buried Alive Project, a nonprofit organization that provides pro bono legal representation for people just like them who are serving life sentences under these outdated federal drug laws. And to date, we've helped free dozens of men and women who were set to die in prison. And To see them all free now, you know, living their life after life, as we call it, it, words escape me, you know, to when I try to describe that joy. You and I are speaking on December 1st, and the president-elect, Joseph Biden, was heavily involved in the 1990s when there were all these, you know, quote-unquote, tough-on-crime, war-on-drugs laws being passed. What do you hope he and his administration concentrate on when they get into power when it comes to clemency and attempting to heal the wounds that the nation has suffered because of these laws? I truly hope that the Biden administration works to aggressively 
restore the sense of fairness that should be at the heart of this nation's criminal legal system. And doing that by granting clemencies at a historical rate and really pushing Congress to change the law. There was a law that passed the First Step Act that was signed by President Trump in December 2018. And it is a first step. And people have been able to come home from prison because of the First Step Act. But there's so much work that needs to be done. The fact remains that the First Step Act is a limited piece of legislation. There were four sentencing reform provisions. One of them was retroactive. And luckily, we've been able to use that to help get a lot of people free. And that's amazing. But there were also three provisions in the First Step Act that changed laws that were not retroactive. This means that we have people serving life sentences today under yesterday's drug laws. And so the retroactivity is so important in these laws. And I'm hopeful the Biden administration sees that as a priority. If the law was wrong today, it was wrong yesterday. You know, we have to bring a sense of logic to that. And also take a step further, you know, and go to the second step and third and fourth, you know, as it relates to marijuana legalization and other very important measures. You know, there are people serving life sentences for marijuana, like Corvain Cooper and Farrell Scott. As Farrell Scott likes to say, people are selling marijuana today and getting a life savings. I sold marijuana and I got a life sentence. And there is a huge amount of injustice in that. And so I'm hopeful the administration definitely prioritizes clemencies, pushes for retroactivity in the First Step Act, and then takes it even further and truly works to transform this nation's criminal legal system. I'd love to talk a little bit about your process of writing this book. Um, First of all, I don't understand how you had the time. Um, (laughs) I know that you were able to be a successful corporate attorney while doing all this clemency work, but writing a book is a special challenge all unto itself. I know that there are many lawyer listeners out there who feel like they have a book inside them or a story that they would like to tell, but where did you start in this writing process? Oh, Lee, it was such a challenge. (laughs) It took me two years to write A Knock at Midnight and doing it all the while getting people free from these life sentences. And it was, it was very challenging, but I knew it was important for me to do. So I know how important it is for us to tell our own stories. And I really wanted to educate people about what I had learned And do it in a way that, as I mentioned before, shows the heartbeat and the human element. And I knew I just had to start. I have not always been a huge fan of writing, but I was always good at it, if that makes sense. And I would sit, you know, sometimes for three hours and look up and I had written like three sentences. And it was just so painful. And then I got some really good advice from one of my mentors, and he said, you know, you're a good orator. You should try to speak it. And I did. You know, I found a dear friend who is such a conscientious listener and so thoughtful. And so she would interview me, and I would tell the story, and we would record it. 
And so if I was talking about a visit at the prison with Sharonda Jones, she would ask questions like, what was the weather like that day? What were you wearing? What smells do you remember? And we recorded this and then I would have it transcribed and able to use the transcription, you know, to build to build the book out in a way that, you know, came to be a knock at midnight. And so, you know, I think you have to find what works for you. I encourage anyone who even has thought about writing a book to do so, you know, and then find what works for you in the process. And for me to be able to speak it all out was very helpful. Of course, after that, there's a lot of writing involved, but at least I had the core components, you know, already there. I can tell you that makes a lot of sense as a reader because I actually, much like I assume my listeners, really enjoy listening and audiobooks. And I listened to part of your book as an audiobook, and it, it really does make a great audiobook if someone else out there would rather consume it that way. So that now makes a lot of sense that it almost began life a little bit as an audiobook. One of the revelations I'd say I had while reading it is because you spend the beginning of the book talking about your childhood and portraying the close communities in East Texas where you were growing up, it was those very communities and the strengths of the bond within them, which perversely wound up involving many people in prosecutions of drug crimes because prosecutors and investigators would lean on people to implicate those closest to them or even just members of the community who they knew. Could you talk a little bit about how that happened and the impact of communities, particularly people of color, Blacks and Hispanics, who were not just one person would be swept up, but multitudes of people would be swept up who had connections to each other? For sure. I'll use the case of Sharonda Jones as a prime example. Sharonda is from Terrell, Texas, and we'll preface it by saying my clients sold drugs and there's no dispute about that. They accept accountability and responsibility for their actions. However, the quantity of drugs was so exacerbated by this whole concept of ghost dope. And Sharonda, she served as a drug mule, if you will. She knew a drug dealer in Houston. She knew drug dealers in Dallas, and they wanted to be connected. And on a handful of occasions, she trafficked powder cocaine from Dallas to Houston and received money for the people she was trafficking for. And the couple in Dallas were childhood friends of hers. They all had grown up in Terrell, Texas. The couple in Dallas got caught up in a federal drug conspiracy that was, ironically enough, involved Chuck Norris, who was a reserve police officer in Terrell at the time. It was during the whole Texas Ranger show. And after dozens of people got swept up initially, many of them began to cooperate with the government in exchange for lighter sentences. And this cooperation included mostly people in their community. And that is how Sharonda became a subject in this indictment. Unfortunately, 
because of how ghost dope works in the federal system, you don't have to be caught with any drugs. You don't have to be on any surveillance, no control buys, not caught with any large sums of money and still be held accountable for a lot of drugs because of ghost dope as it relates to this whole federal drug conspiracy. And it's called ghost dope. For example, Sharonda was held accountable for 24 kilograms of crack cocaine. Even though she was never found with any drugs, there was never any physical evidence. It was solely based on the testimony of the co-conspirators, in particular, the couple from Dallas. And that learning that just blew me away, (laughs) you know, that she could be held accountable for such a large quantity of drugs without there being any drugs or any substantive evidence besides the testimony of people who received lesser sentences. Sharonda received life and the couple received less than 10 years. Wow. In your clemency work, you have been able to find publicity through many ways, sometimes by speaking with journalists, which as you said in the book, can be a little bit of a two-edged sword. Hopefully they'll get your word out, but they may not communicate it the way that you and your client would hope they would. But also through celebrities who have gotten involved in the clemency process. Could you talk a little bit about what the impact can be of publicity for a client who's looking for clemency? You know, it is, there are a lot of variables that come with that. You know, I think a lot of it is timing and opportunity. For example, I represented Alice Johnson, who received clemency from President Trump. And Alice did a video op-ed with Mike.com where she was telling her story from prison And Kim Kardashian West just so happened to be on Twitter and saw Alice's moving video. And Kim was not only moved to tears, she was moved to action and began to champion for Alice Johnson's release. And it was good timing. You know, it was at a time where President Trump was open to hearing Kim and once learning about Alice's case, you know, resulted in Alice's freedom. I think a lot of people saw Kim go to the White House one week and Alice Johnson receive clemency the next week, but they didn't see the seven months of legal work and negotiations that took place behind the scenes to really show that Alice was truly deserving of this mercy. And so in those situations, you know, I feel that Celebrities and influencers, they should use their platforms in a way that helps promote the greater good. One thing that is important when celebrities and influencers get involved is that they do link up with people on the ground actually doing the work so that they can be educated and learn more about the issues. And that is something that I highly commend Kim Kardashian for doing. She truly wanted to know how, what laws were in place that would even allow Alice to get a life sentence to start with. And so she connected with lawyers, myself, Sean Holly, Jennifer Turner with the ACLU. And, you know, we were able to ensure she was equipped 
to be able to present Alice's case to the president in a compelling way, and she did. And Alice is free today because of that. Let's say one of our listeners or someone who picks up the book wants to become involved themselves in clemency work, uh, whether they're an attorney or just a concerned member of the public, like ultimately Kim Kardashian West was. What would you suggest for them as some of the first steps to getting involved in this work? For attorneys, I'll start there. It is just taking the first step, you know, to becoming educated about clemency and in, in these laws and just doing it. You know, I was not a criminal defense lawyer. I'm not a litigator. I was a corporate lawyer and just really almost taught myself about federal law and the clemency process. And I would just recommend for lawyers to reach out to groups that are doing the work already, like the Buried Alive Project. I know there's a whole compassionate release push, you know, with the compassionate release clearinghouse that's being led by Families Against Mandatory Minimums and the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. But yeah, reach out to organizations who are already on the ground doing the work and and just get involved. You know, sometimes I think, especially as lawyers, we think too hard (laughs) about things. You know, it's it's really just about taking that first step and reaching out to see how you can help these organizations who are on the front lines. And those organizations will definitely be able to equip the lawyers with the resources that they need. The same similar for people who want to get involved generally to advocate, you know, something as simple as a social media share on Facebook or retweet on Twitter. That's how Alice's video went viral. And that is something, you know, that takes us seconds to do, to share a story that we come across, to send it to our network, to share as well. So that's a way to get involved. Also to reach out as well to local organizations doing the work to see how you can help. And just sharing the word, you know, I recommend several books to to get started with the working knowledge. Not just my book, of course, but Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And there's a documentary on Netflix called 13th by Ava DuVernay. Those are all great resources to start to get a working knowledge. And then from there, totally reach out to local organizations and and lend a helping hand. And finally, to wrap up, I'd love to talk about the title of your book. First of all, was that an easy one or uh, did it take some searching for you to arrive at the title, A Knock at Midnight? You know, it just came to me through the writing process A Knock at Midnight is the title of a Martin Luther King Jr. sermon. And there was a point in my life after I had left corporate law and was really hitting the ground running with criminal justice work. There was a time where I was in a really dark place of wondering, what have I gotten myself into? All these families are hurting. They're needing their loved ones. Clemencies were getting denied at the time. And during this time, Corey Jacobs, who was still serving life at the time, sent me an email. In federal prison, they have an intranet service they can use that costs the money, of course. But he sent me an email and he asked me to look at the 
Dr. King's sermon and knock at midnight. And it truly was at one of my lowest points during this work. And in the sermon, Dr. King uses the parable of the weary traveler seeking loaves of bread and a man knocking on a neighbor's door at midnight seeking these loaves of bread and the neighbor wouldn't answer. And the man kept knocking and he kept knocking. And Dr. King talks about the three loaves of bread being faith, hope, and love. And he goes on to tell the story and show that the person that is knocking on the door for bread at midnight is truly seeking the dawn. And the hope in that message that Dr. King leaves us with is that the dawn will come. And I knew I was going to include that scene in the book of Corey sending me this email to listen to this sermon that was so uplifting and empowering for me. And as I was writing, I was listening to the sermon, you know, just over and over. And I realized, you know, this is the entire backdrop of the journey. You know, Sharonda Jones's case, it took six years, all those years of, of knocking at midnight, you know, on the dawn, the dawn came. And it's just a message of hope, you know, that we have to keep knocking and we have to understand and find comfort in the fact that dawn will come. Well, Brittany, thank you so much for joining us. For my listeners, the book is A Knock at Midnight by Brittany K. Barnett. And thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.